Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Rob Barnett has been a radio DJ and program director who pivoted to TV as programming director for both MTV and VH1 in the 1990s, then pivoted back to radio to launch CBS Radio's Free FM in the wake of Howard Stern's departure, where he hired Adam Carolla to replace Stern on the West Coast stations. Then Barnett left to do his own damn thing online by founding My Damn Channel, where he worked with folks like Harry Shearer, David Wayne, and Don Was, and recruited folks such as Grace Helbig, You Suck at Photoshop, and Beth Hoyt as well as funding more than 30 other original comedy series, working with such people as Josh Gad, Maria Bamford, Ileana Douglas, Gilbert Gottfried, and even Coolio. Barnett also briefly worked with me and the comics comic. 14 years after launching My Damn Channel, Barnett's translated the life lessons he learned in hiring and recruiting talent into a new line of work as a headhunter, publishing his first book on the subject called Next Job, Best Job. Barnett sat down with me to share stories about how radio, TV, and internet media used to work, or not work as the case may be, and what he has learned about show business along the way. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffany at P-I-F-F-A-N-Y so you can read bonus commentary on this episode, as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! So, Rob Barnett, uh, last things first, um, two things, last things first. One, it's great to see you. I, I don't think I've seen you in several years. So thank you, Zoom, for, the, for bringing us back together. And also, I have to say an even deeper thank you to you, because full disclosure for our longtime uh, listeners slash readers of the Comics Comic, Rob uh, helped me out uh, very much on both a personal and professional level in 2012 when I was at a low, uh, bringing me uh, very briefly into the fold of my damn channel. So thank you for that. I really, I don't know. I don't know if I'd still be doing, I don't know if I'd still be doing what I'm doing. If, if you hadn't bailed me out in that moment. Long time fan, but you know, the funny thing about this career that we all have in stupid show business is you just said 2012 you would have said 2010, 2013, 2014. I can't remember when things were anymore. <laughs> I can't remember. That's, 2012, I, I agree. All that's, right. Well, that's the thing about, you know, once once you, you, you reach a certain age, it all kind of blurs together. Um, so let me so let me start by going way, way back because, uh, you know, I started out in newspapers and ended up being a web slash podcast guy, you started out in radio, uh, at college radio first, and then in professional. I know, you, I know you were at WAAF in Boston and some other stations in New England and the Northeast. When you were starting out in radio and you had, you know, you had these gigs and you got to interview Mick Jagger in 1981, did you think this was going to be your life for the rest of your life, that you would be a, a disc jockey? That was pretty much it. Yeah. For me, I was a kid like many who watched too much TV, listened to too much radio, played too much music. That was it. Right. I was just a, a media junkie 
from the time I could eat food. And so in college, when I stumbled into the college radio station, that was the first epiphany. I was like, oh, that's it. That's what I want to do. I want to play records, <laughs> talk about them and be paid. You know, that, that was about as good as I could think anything would be for, for a job. So that was my first that was my first chapter, and that, that lasted a lot of great years in Boston. Then I moved where, you know, all New York Jews born in Brooklyn go to Dallas, Texas. <laughs> I, I was there for about three years, and, and then to L.A. So that was most of the 80s for me. But then in the late 80s, uh, MTV, still kind of, you know, in the early years and definitely in its heyday, was run by ex-radio people. So that's how I made the first segue, you know, from, from radio to TV. But at the time, though, before you, before you made the leap, before video killed your radio star. Um, <laughs> sorry, I had to say that. Uh, before not. that happened, yeah. were you thinking, like, throughout the, the early part of the 80s that your first job would be your best job, would be your last job? Speaking of your new book, was. Next Job, Best Job. No, I pretty much was. I, you know, I mean, I did at a very, very young age, I started to realize that the only way I could have the most creative fun on a job was to force myself and force management to put me into senior roles. So in the beginning, uh, at about 2021, 20, something like that, I was already kind of in charge of people who were twice my age. So it was this, for me, it really was never about the money. It was about if I can just move up the ladder a little bit, then people will stop saying no and I could do more fun stuff. <laughs> so I thought if I could maintain that, then yeah, I would, I, I would probably have stayed in rock radio. But the problem in the 80s was that these consultants came in and they started sucking the life and creative blood out of what was wild, freeform, FM, creative, sex, drugs, and rock and roll radio. It got really, really unfun. And uh, I got to meet Bob Dylan during that point in time. And they brought about six good radio stations backstage one night to meet him. And the record company guy goes, Bob, these are the good radio people. <laughs> and Dylan looks at, at us and says, well, what does that mean? And I spoke for the group because I was a little bit braver. I had met him not long before that night. Mm -hmm. So this was like I, I got my Bob terrors out of the way. And I said, well, you know, we're some of the few stations left that don't have these consultants. And Dylan looked at the group and he said, well, this was 1987, I remember, because Tom Petty was his backing band. He was oh, touring, wow. okay, touring yeah, with yeah. Petty. And, and he looked at us and he said, well, in the 60s, we'd tour on the bus. We'd go to different towns. We'd turn on the stations. And the stations would all sound different. And every time I tell that story, I don't want it to sound like Bob was being mean. He wasn't being mean. He was just telling the truth. You know, and I was with one of my best friends, Cindy Balin, who's one of the great rock radio people from Boston. And we left this dressing room. We walked out and we said, yeah, that's it. I'm getting out, you know, meaning it, it was already unfun because they were starting to make everything corporate. You know, if, if there were 500 great songs from an artist, you know, you'd hear the one same song at three o'clock every day. They really just started to make it 
uh, a thing to run from and not a thing to stay in. Did did the consultants come along with Clear Channel and the like, or or before? They were earlier. Yeah, that was before the mass consolidation. I mean, they say Clear Channel, but now it's all iHeart Media. I think. Yeah. So this was before the big corporations started buying them all up. There were just these four or five guys that used to have long hair in the heyday, and then they cut all their their hair. They they bought some fancy suits. They all used to carry those Halliburton briefcases, you know, those <laughs> silvery-looking briefcases. And if you were the program director of the radio station, you were the top creative guy. But the boss was, you know, a woman named Mary. They'd come to the radio station. They'd sneak into Mary's office when you weren't around. They'd say, yeah, I don't know about Sean. You know, I don't know. I, I think you know, you could probably do better because the <laughs> ratings are slipping. And we have this program director from Cleveland that we'd like to bring in, you know, and it was kind of a mafia thing. They just they, they started to wedge in between the great talent and the ownership thinking, oh, these are the Svengali's. These are the the wizards, you know, and and now your radio station in, you know, St. Louis is going to immediately start sounding like the radio station in San Antonio. And that was the beginning of the end of, of all that fun. But but boy, you know, when when we worked together at My Damn Channel, you got to know Harry Shearer a little bit. You know, Harry was one of the first original FM disc jockeys in the late 70s. I, I In late 60s, sorry. And, and I knew him, you know, way back when. I mean, he was one of the original freaks, as was Michael McKean. You know, these guys really started it in, in the late 60s. And it was this idea that was based on pure freedom. Play whatever the hell you want, say whatever the, the hell you want. That was magic. And there's very, very little of that left in the world. Yeah, in between, in between those two moments in time, uh, being in terrestrial radio, as the old kids say, and My Damn Channel, you, kind of, you were able to kind of go with the flow because in the late 80s, MTV and VH1 was a great, was the place to be. So you could still kind of be that person that you wanted to be, which was do all the cool things and fun things without too many of the suits. And then you went to CBS radio, which was at the time you were there was all about free FM. (laughs) So I guess it was trying to, it was, wasn't the point of free FM was like trying to, to nostalgically remind people of the days when, well, I, I got back into radio. This was 040506. And uh, about 17 minutes after I got there, Howard Stern cracked the mic one morning and quit and said he's leaving to go to satellite radio. And, it wasn't because uh, of you. I just want you to reassure you. It wasn't. I know. I know. I worship him. I mean, Howard, I started at the same college radio station he did uh, at BU. And he's a little bit older than me, but but I worship the guy. But the the moment he quit, I realized that that was the beginning of the end of the corporation because he was the franchise, you know, right. he was the franchise. And so so they ended up not long after he quit, I was put in charge and I had to replace him. And I knew I couldn't replace him with a single person. 
So I came up with this idea called Free FM. And and it was, as you say, hearkening back to the glory days. Howard used to think it was a diss against him going to paid radio. But he invited (laughs) me on his show Mm -hmm. years later, about three years later. I always remember the date because it was on a 420. It was April 20th. when Howard had me on for about an hour and I got to explain to him that it was in honor of the great radio freaks and not some kind of, you know, joke against satellite. Right. Not free versus paid. It was more free as in freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so take me back. Uh, since I know you're, you're foggy on years, I will say uh, July <laughs> of 2007, which is when right. my damn channel launched. Yeah. So when you launched, like it was, it's hard to even, try to describe to Gen Z what the landscape was like then. I mean, you had a still new YouTube. Uh, no Twitter, no iPhone. Funnier, Funnier Die started around the these same time as I, you did. These dates I remember, okay. Funnier Die launched April 2017, and I launched July 31st. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, 20, 2007. Mm-hmm. Funnier Die went live in April and uh, we went live in July, just just almost the exact same time. But but they had a zillion dollars from Silicon Valley, and I had money from my ex in laws, my ex brother in law, uh, some severance from Moonves, who had kicked me out of CBS Radio. We were the scrappy fuckers, you know. Well, I guess that's why you could put "damn" in the title of yours. Oh, because it's such a bad word. <laughs> but uh when i when i came up with the name it was really hard to come up with the name and i wasn't going to name it anything unless harry shearer gave me the go-ahead so i called harry and i said all right i got it he goes let me hear it i said it's my damn channel he said yes with one caveat don't fall into the trap of calling it my damn email, my damn uh, t-shirt, nice. my damn. If you burn it out like that, you'll kill it. But if you just call it the name, it's great. So I said, all right. So then we thought, well, we need a tagline. What's the tagline going to be? And we fought and fought and fought for months trying to come up with how do you explain it? And we decided that the tagline would be no tagline. The closest we ever came. <laughs> and we did this the week of launch as we said, it's not TV. It's not HBO. It's not really that good. My damn channel. <laughs> that was the closest we came. And David Wayne was like, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> Sign me not. up for that. Yes, he liked that. <laughs> but what, what also strikes me as so crazy to think back on this is that, you know, and I've talked to, to Sam Reich from College Humor. Oh, I love Sam. I've had him on the podcast, so you definitely fit into the, the fabric of, of this podcast. Um, like, all of you guys had your own proprietary video players also. Yeah, we, that's right. So it wasn't we, tied to YouTube. There was no, a free, I didn't, there was a, I didn't want to. I was afraid. But there was a moment was in time. There was a moment yeah. in time when, when everything was was kind of free-floating on the web, and you could embed a video from any sort of company. Yes. No, I, I didn't trust anybody except me. You know, I, I wanted to have, I wanted to have our own destination that we could control completely because I didn't want to put all the eggs in the basket of some other platform that could crap out at any moment and wreck us. So we did launch 
day one on our site and on YouTube. Don't laugh. Well, laugh. You're supposed to laugh. It's a comedy show. We also launched on MySpace. <laughs> right, because 2007 MySpace, MySpace was still a thing. Ladies and gentlemen, MySpace. It was maybe in its last legs. You know. I mean, you, you could have been, Harry could have said you could have been confusing people with that you had an allegiance or partnership with MySpace. My, MySpace, my damn channel. Yeah. Um, Weren't they owned by Fox then? I think they might have been owned by Fox in their last. I believe life. Fox Fox bought bought the site in 2006. So yeah. Okay. See, I knew you would know. That. And it took them a year or two you before encyclopedic. It, it took them a year or two before it completely tanked. Yeah. But what was what was your thinking about moving into the digital comedy space? Like all of well, your previous stuff had been, yeah, music well, or I celebrities. Had, yeah. Well, listen, I, I worked for the you know, MTV, VH1, CBS, the biggest media companies in the world with A-list stars. What I got out of those last years is I realized that digital was the new punk. It was coming up literally out of garages and basements and Moonves and all these other a-holes didn't really focus on it at all in the beginning. So I thought, well, they're not even looking at this. They're not paying attention. And I can see something that's going to be coming up. So I better hurry up and jump in there and learn as much as I could learn with as many years as were left before the Foxes and the Viacoms and all the rest came in to wreck that. So I realized that I wanted to go out and do a couple of things. The first thing was I wanted to hire amazing talent and give them not just money, but give them the one thing they hardly ever get, which is 100% total creative control. I knew that if I offered that, I'd be able to sign people that really mattered. And, and at the time, most of the videos that were on YouTube were dogs, cats, and babies. There weren't stars on YouTube. So, so that was my first simplistic idea that, you know, if David Wayne put up a comedy series starring Paul Rudd and Elizabeth Banks, it would be better than everything else out there <laughs> at that time. And I could build a business, but I also didn't want to offer David Wayne a bullshit revenue share off the views that he may or may not get. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write him a check that he could cash you know, and pay him and pay him well. And and so that was our philosophy. What 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 then did it tell you when in that first year or so? I think you know, even though I watched Wayne Days and Horrible People and pretty much most of the stuff on your channel, what did it say to you that I think the the real breakout hit was you suck at Photoshop? Yes, <laughs> because that was, that was not based on a celebrity or or an existing talent. The, that really was a game changer for us. I don't know if you want to hear the the short story, the medium story, or the long story. They're all good. You pick. I'll try to tell either any of those three. Tell the medium story, and then I'll ask follow up questions. If I all right, I I'll go more. the medium. I'll go medium length. So I know I have to launch the channel. And I realized that I'm going to need some branding. I'm going to need a logo. I'm going to need some people that can help me do what actually was as much the magic of MTV as anything. And it was promos. Nobody on the internet still, to my knowledge, does promos. But promos really, really drive a lot of how you can build a brand 
if you're doing something that we envisioned, which was, for lack of a better phrase, like a, a futuristic television network, I wanted promos. So a friend of mine gave me a list one day, excuse me, of all these, don't laugh, Webby winners mm-hmm. that had won for uh, online web design, that sort of stuff. And I looked at 50 of them and I didn't like any of them. And then I picked the 51st one and I found these two freaks <laughs> doing a website to promote their little branding firm that was literally the closest thing to an acid trip I'd ever seen. And they had a contact button. So I press that and I type in, uh, would like to have a conversation about a new company I'm launching hit. And the, in 10 seconds, the guy calls me. I put my phone number in. I said, hey, how's it going? He goes, great. I go, where are you guys, L.A.? He goes, no. I go, where are you, New York? He goes, no. I go, Boston? He goes, no. I said, uh, San Francisco. He goes, no. I said, all right, I'm out of guesses. So I said, where are you? He said, we're in Covington, Covington, Kentucky. I can't even say it. Okay. So I said, well, that they have doesn't a nice work. airport there. Yeah. So I said, that doesn't <laughs> work for me. So I'm going to fly you. There were two guys. I said, I'm going to fly you to Newark. I live about 10 minutes from Newark and I want to have lunch. So will you do that? And they said, yes. And I flew these two guys in from Kentucky named Matt and Troy. I always told them they were one vowel away from South Park, right. right? just one vowel away. And I met them and I said, I, I need you to do logo. I need you to do, you know, branding. Let's do some promos. Let's have some fun. And right away at the first lunch, they're like, well, we make, we'd like to make original series. And I said, yeah, that's okay. We have Paul Rudd and David Wayne and like, we're good with that. You know, mm-hmm. like, you guys just shut up and make the logo. <laughs> and they kept pitching me, I guess you'd have to call them pilots And some were okay, but I just wasn't getting excited. And the end of this story, of course, is something that anyone listening to this can go find on the YouTube. Just Google, you suck at Photoshop. Because when I saw the first episode, I just freaked out. I lost my mind. It was the most original idea I'd ever seen. And within about a year, we were getting a bajillion views every time we uploaded an episode there was one Webby award and yes, I know everyone in the world won Webby awards, but there was one year where they go and the winner of the best comedy series is, and we walk up on stage and there's Lorne Michaels sitting in the front row (laughs) waiting for his Saturday night live digital award, Mm -hmm. but it's my guys from Covington. (laughs) They were great. They, they really, they really, really changed everything for us. Victory for the little guys. So what was, what was the first video you ever saw from Grace Helbig? Uh, Grace was doing a couple of videos with Michelle. They were Grace and Michelle. Right. And I just saw that and had this thought that um, in addition to the people that we've discussed, like Harry Shearer, David, when, by the way, we, we always had a music channel run by Don was, who was, is not was arguably one of the most magical souls and greatest guys in the world of music. So my a game was going to be go with the sure bet, right? Go with the, go with the best, best people on the planet earth. That was always the a game, but I also saw, the early idea of what years later became the 
horribly overused word, influencers. And, and I also remembered the Lonely Island breakout and thought that I should get into that world. Um, but the original concept for Grace is a funny story. Like we said a minute ago, that I believe that the internet needed promos to build a brand. I also believed it needed a host. I didn't just want to have a website with a whole bunch of boxes on it and you're supposed to click stuff. I wanted to have somebody who was an incredibly um, powerful personality, someone you could really build a relationship with. And I wanted that person on a Tuesday morning to say, hey, how's it going? Listen, we have a new episode of Wayne Days that's going to blow your mind. We're premiering it today. Please go to the Wayne Days channel and click on it. And by the way, you know, it, it stars Jonah Hill. You know, I wanted someone to do that, right. but I wanted them to do it in their own way. So I started having meetings with Grace and talking her, to her I was going to say talking her into it. So I did that too, (laughs) talking to her about this idea. Um, And so built this relationship where, you know, every single day, hence daily grace, she was there with something original. And of course it built into one of the most successful things of all time. I, I had grace working with us for about five or six years at its height. Grace was getting a million views every single day Monday through Friday, 5 million views a week. It was a beautiful thing. And, you know, we took a lot of shit in the press because when she got famous, she got the agent, the lawyer, the manager, all the fucking assholes came in. Mm-hmm. Um, they hated the, the idea that I had. Everyone else was doing these rev share deals. What I was doing was I was paying Grace a lot of money, but I was owning the content. That was my way of doing it, not mm-hmm. rev share. And, um, and every couple of years we do a new contract. I pay her a lot more money, but then when Hollywood really started to come a knocking, there were these negotiations where she wanted ownership. I'm going to be, tell you the story that's never been told. I've never told anyone this story because it broke, it broke out in the press and it got really bad. I blame my ex partner who was a dick and I blame her handlers who were disgusting Mm. what happened and what has never been told because i didn't want to argue this out in the press is that we were willing to give her a ton of the ownership that she never had but what they were doing was kind of turning us into the bad guy so that they could then go make a lot of noise and go make big hollywood deals and all that it literally broke my heart you know that it, it it looked bad and and we looked bad but but like so many things that happen when somebody breaks out, you have your time as the, what is it, farm team? You know, mm-hmm. the farm team before somebody goes to insert name of your favorite baseball team here. But I'm, I'm really grateful to Grace because we did have, regardless of how it ended up in the press, this, this beautiful thing that built and built and built over years to, to launch her into something that was, was really successful. So I, I loved, I loved every minute of what it was. I still love her. And then I still have a little bit of a broken heart because Hollywood assholes fucked it up. You know? No. Yeah. The, um, the first time I met Grace and Michelle was at your first, you had a first anniversary party and mm-hmm. was it your apartment? 
It was it was in a it was in a commercial building. Yeah, it it was an office that seemed like it could be an apartment. (laughs) Oh, I remember that one. We were in the film center for most of the ten years, but I'm remembering the one you were talking about. (laughs) I was I was sitting in in my office one day, and uh, it was the top floor, same same street as the New York Times. We were on 40th Street between Broadway and eighth. And right. I had the top floor of this shitty garment district uh, uh, building really old and funky, but we had the top floor and we had roof access, but the roof leaked. <laughs> so that's where that party was. But I remember I, I came out of the, the elevator and Grace was right there outside the elevator with a microphone and Michelle had the camera and they were just interviewing everybody who came out of the elevator was content. And I was like, right. Even at the first anniversary party, it was like, no, this is going to be the video. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm, you just made me remember that we sent Grace and Michelle once to interview Sam Cedar and Mark Marin when they were a duo on Air America. That was an early My Damn Channel uh, road trip. I'm just remembering. Right. That was the that was Marin's pre precursor to WTF was yep. him and Sam in the break room. That's it. The break yeah, room. Yeah. I was I was looking for the title. I, uh, yeah. Am I in second? And then I can also you stay the, with me at all times. Now at that, at that getting first, older, can at you that first, with me? <laughs> at the first anniversary party in 2008, I also that was the first time I met Mark Malkoff, who mm. later became. I love him. A. Uh, a big My Damn Channel guy with his who is currently sleepovers. being seen in all the repeats of the CNN late night comedy series. Mark's very prominent in these episodes. Well, I'm he's really happy he's, for he's him. become the Johnny Carson expert. He is. Um. Uh, so uh, okay, so with My Damn Channel, so there was those early days. Uh, then I know you you finally did get s- some money in 2010 and then the next year 2011 was when youtube did that the radical thing which i don't know well i want to hear how you feel about it in retrospect but in 2011 they announced youtube announced this thing where they were going to have deals with a hundred different channels and give them all a, a big pile of google money how did that upend not just your universe but everybody else who was trying to do their own thing at that point well, this is a really great story for me. It's the reason I write about this in in my book. And it's a lesson to anyone who's ever believed that social media is a waste of time and isn't something that can really help your career or your business. They're wrong. Because in 2009, right after Twitter was born, a person on my staff name you remember maria diokno maria was one of my first right hand people and just a brilliant brilliant soul and a billion times smarter than me about all things social media and a couple of weeks after twitter was born she's giving me a lesson one day (laughs) teach me how to not suck (laughs) so now i'm trying to take that lesson on my own it's about 10 30 at night do you remember Brad O'Farrell who worked for me? Brad was keyboard cat. Okay. Brad did that. And wow. so at 10, I didn't know you had keyboard cat working. Well, it for wasn't you. mine. Brad did that before. Right. But I didn't know he was of my damn channel, but right. He but was I didn't know he cat. was, he was sitting there like in the office or something. Fuck yeah. <laughs> and he might've been all of 19 years old, maybe mm-hmm. 20. I don't know. 
with the world's biggest beard. He was just the, the teddy bear nerd of all time. And it's about 1030 at night and I'm in my office trying to tweet and Brad's still there out in the big room. And I get a message, a direct message on Twitter. It says, I love you. Suck at Photoshop. I love my damn channel. Next time you're out here, let's have lunch. And I look at the tweet, I look at the uh, message and I scream out into the hall, Brad, get in here. And Brad <laughs> comes in and I, and Brad usually didn't talk and he mm-hmm. probably didn't like me. So he didn't talk to me <laughs> that much. And I point to the screen and I go, is that him? And Brad goes, Oh my God. And it was Chad Hurley, the mm-hmm. inventor, founder, creator of YouTube reaching out to me on Twitter with props <laughs> for what we're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. So I look at this message and my head is exploding. Cause now I'm thinking I'm going to be a dot com zillionaire. Do da do da. And what do I say? What do I do? How do I try to act cool? How do I not blow it? So I'm thinking, how do you respond to let's have lunch? I came up with one word with four letters and I typed D E A L like deal. We'll have lunch. Mm-hmm. Then I'm the no patience, immediate, everything has to be done now guy. I fucking waited for 21 days. I counted off the days (laughs) to make believe that I happened to be flying out to the West Coast so that I could casually go, hey, Chad, let's have lunch. And I waited 21 days for this. But on maybe the 20th day, one of my top investors says, Hey, guess who I met last night at the such and such conference? I'm like, oh, my God, he fucked this up. I said, what did you say to him? He goes, well, I told him that he emailed my CEO. And it's, oh, fuck. So now I, <laughs> I send a message to Chad and I said, I hear you met, quote, dad last night. And I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Now, can I make believe that I'm coming out to the West Coast so we can have that lunch? So. I fly out there and I fell in love with him. He was the nicest half a billionaire I'd ever met in my (laughs) life. And we really got on, you know, we started having lunches over the course of many months. Now it's 2010 and Chad decides, I've also never told this story, Sean. I'm I'm telling you this story. Okay. Never told Chad decides that my damn channel is going to be the first content investment for all of YouTube. And we have multiple meetings. And in the final meeting, I'm in the Google offices in New York, down across from the Chelsea market. Right. And there's two huge screens in this video conference. One is in San Bruno and Chad's office, and the other is in Mountain View and Google. And they're not buying us, but they're going to put in a big, big fat check. And I realized that when the world hears that, then we're going to have something even better than a Webby Award. We're going to have some real cred to be able to get some more capital and start paying you and, and all the other creators a lot more money, right? This is it. This is the moment. But Chad's sitting in the back of his office and there's some other guy in front of the camera. Mm. And that guy's staring at me with a bad vibe. I can just smell it. It (laughs) smells bad. Uh And I'm doing my little spiel because, well, this is Rob and my damn child. And I just feel like whatever's coming out of my mouth, he doesn't like. 
And the guy leans back and looks at Chad and goes, what are we doing here? And Chad says, we're investing. And that guy's like, well, why would we do that? And the whole meeting's fucking unraveling, you know? And I'm sitting next to the mergers and acquisitions guy of Google, right? So the, the video <laughs> conference ends and I go, what the fuck was that? And, and he goes, well, this is a new guy who's very senior in the company, et cetera, et cetera. About two weeks go by. And we find out that I had just met the incoming new CEO of YouTube mm. because Chad and Steve, the two originators, were getting their Google buyout. They were leaving, right? Nice. They had, uh, and, and that couldn't be discussed, I guess, because it's illegal or something. You can't, you know, reveal these big corporate changes. So we missed our moment, Sean, by a hair. About it's a, it's a classic showbiz story. Yeah, about a year. One, one suit says yes, and then the suits get replaced, oh, and the, the new suit, suit says no way. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so it took about a year to the moment that you describe. Which again, you're my encyclopedia. You're saying this is 2011. That sounds right. I think yeah. where they give us and about 90 something other companies a big check to go make quote unquote, the good stuff. Right. And that right. was a, that was a really nice moment. It just wasn't the moment, you know, it was, right. good, you were though. sharing and it with, you were sharing it with, we 99, were sharing other it with 99 other assholes, <laughs> 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 but, but in all seriousness, it was great for all hundred of us that got the money because what, what I did, uh, you were probably at this party. We bought out the, uh, the SVA theater on 23rd street for, for a, uh, an event. Do you remember this? It was, um, I think we closed the New York television festival mm. with this great event. And Harry Shearer was, was our guest. And we had about 300 people because we were celebrating some of that YouTube money, which in all seriousness, wasn't paying for a party. Uh, it, it paid for 30 original comedy series all done in that same year. And we lit up my damn channel live I built a teeny little studio in right. our office. Uh, my ex-wife is an architect. She designed it. We, it was, you remember, it was tiny. Yeah, and, no, I, uh, that's, that's when I would come and visit you regularly at that office. Yeah. Every day at four o'clock, we were live on social media. And everyone used to say in 2011, it's like, well, why would you do a live show on the internet? <laughs> I mean, they, people thought it was dumb, you know, but we, we had so much fun and we had movie stars, TV stars, comedians, uh, great ones. Marianne ways was booking it for us. Remember? And that was, that yeah. was being hosted by like a rotating or. Well, it was, Beth, it was, I it was Beth, Beth Hoyt. I, right. I, I there was great. There was Grace Helberg and then Beth Hoyt and Mamrie was also part of it. I remember. No, but I, you know, but Beth, it was Beth it Hoyt. Was really for Beth. Yeah. I, okay. I interviewed 69 people for that. I remember the number and, and hired Beth who was, just the perfect host for that show. And then one day out of the week, we had Grace hosted. Okay. And, uh, you know, all, all, so many great comics came in every single day and, and did that show without fail. We did it in a little teeny $5,000 TriCaster. You know, it was, it was so great. And a hundred years ahead of its time, but, but really, really fun. I know from talking with Sam from College Humor that, that there was a combination of, of YouTube money being spread around and then not being spread around. But then also when Facebook did a big pivot to video, that that kind of ended up 
screwing with everybody's metrics and everybody's budgets. And I know that that really was kind of the, the beginning of the, the, the turn for college humor. Was that also what happened with my name channel or were there other factors at play? For me, I had to do two things, right? As a CEO, I wanted to set the table on the creative side, but I also wanted to make sure that as futuristic as the tech and the content was, I wanted a futuristic business model. I never believed that getting a shit ton of views on YouTube would equal more revenue shared ad dollars and that was going to build a business. I just thought that was chump change. So I had had those 12 years at MTV and VH1. And for a lot of the years, I was one of the heads of programming, but they also would lock me in a closet once a year. And I would put together the television upfront for ad sales and creatively you would be in a situation every year where the Monday through Sunday Nielsen ratings of an MTV or a VH1, say at three o'clock in the afternoon, were relatively small. I don't want to go into the rabbit hole now of describing how small, but let's just say for the argument's sake, they were relatively small. The way that we made big money was that we would put together things like the MTV Movie Awards, VH1 Divas, a golf tournament, you name it. These were so-called tentpole events that were designed first and foremost to charge advertisers a premium that in and of itself was tenfold what they'd be paying to advertise with spots and dots and interruptive advertising on the channel. So when I started I thought that the game was not get the most views and get more revenue share dollars from advertisers. I thought the game was convince advertisers to get into a little swimming pool and create premium content together that they would pay premium dollars for. And so we started to do that very, very early on. We were lucky we met man named Tony Pace, P-A-C-E. And Tony, for I believe more than a decade, was the chief marketing officer of Subway. And we were both from New Jersey. We both worshiped Bruce Springsteen. And most importantly, Tony saw that we were doing something that he needed to pay some attention to. But think about the math. Subway was spending a billion dollars a year on television. So for him to peel off a million to a little schmuck like me <laughs> to do something premium and special and interesting mm -hmm. and original was just experimentally genius on his part and was enough for me to then pay my whole staff for a year. So we came up with, it wasn't my idea. I can't take any credit at all. We came up with the Subway Fresh Artist Filmmaker Series. College students were making original comedy series for My Damn Channel, sponsored by Subway. And then where, where I got involved is I said, well, you know, 
Pasternak's at IFC and, and Kent Reese, my friend was running marketing and they had a house every year at South by Southwest. So I said, well, not only will they make comedy series, Tony, let's pick a winner and let's throw the winner a red carpet premium party at South by Southwest to show their, their series and treat mm-hmm. them like rock stars. And for some really strange reason, even though this sounds, this sounds completely impossible to believe subway didn't have a lockdown presence at South by when I pitched that idea. So we brought IFC in and this little simple thing was good enough to bring them back as a repeat advertiser four years in a row, right? Four mm-hmm. years that money paid my whole staff just that one deal, you know? So we weren't like playing that game of, Ooh, if the algorithm changes, we lose views and then there's less revenue. But Sam's right. A lot of companies went down, you know, they went down when, when the platforms changed the rules. And then, you know, I know funny or die the way they kind of adapted was Twofold. Movies, TV, right? Well, the first, you know, the first was the first was leaning heavily into branded content, like you're talking about with Subway. Mm-hmm. They did a lot of branded content, but then the other was instead of focusing on viral videos or web series, they just kind of reverted back to an old traditional production company selling TV shows and, and movies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we tried that too. I mean, I, I begged David to do Wayne Days on IFC. They wanted it. But David didn't want to do it as a television series because it had this perfect, it had this perfect feel online. And then you remember, I hired Josh Gad to oh, do yeah, yeah. a series called Gigi, and I purposely timed it so that episode one of Gigi premiered on my damn channel the exact same night that Josh opened on Broadway in the Book of Mormon. Because I, I thought... I, I went to that party. I remember that. You did? <laughs> yeah. I would, oh, there's great stories about that opening night. So, so, um, so, you know, I thought, well, that'll work. And then I'll bring Pasternak to the opening of that party. And then he'll hang out with Josh. And then we'll get it to be a TV series on IFC. Except if you're listening, Josh... We were right. You should have done it because instead he took, remember this one, 1600 pen or yeah. something. It was a white house show mm-hmm. that, 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 you know, was the, the move that he and his agent wanted to make because it was big time. It was network. Paid, yeah. yeah. It was network. It paid a lot more. I'm sure than IFC, but Gigi was his baby. Gigi was his, his idea, his show. And, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda been an IFC series. So, so we were trying that stuff too. So how, so how then, you know, I've been, I've been, I've been cranking away online for four. Well, I've been cranking away online since 2007, the same year that you started my damn channel. So how did you get at the point in 2016 where I was like, I guess this is not going to keep going. Well, we went to the altar, not once, but four times to get married, merged, or acquired by a bigger company, four times. And each time, for a variety of reasons, it just wasn't meant to be. Now, here we are all these years later, 
And that was true of, of college humor and funny or diamond. Yeah. You read these little deals that have happened, you know, in the recent few months or whatever, but the truth of the matter is we were all looking for that real pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you know, that, that sort of maker Disney thing, you know, the big, big dollar sign, whatever. And very, very few were able to get that because I think in the end, it was Netflix and Amazon that took that original DNA that we all started mixing and ran with original series online in a way that none of us could. You know, I, I met Ted Sarandos. Uh, I want to say the House of Cards and Orange is the New Black. I'm going to guess 2011. 2013. Woo, 2013. 2013. All right. So you reminded me that, that you started and we started in 2007. That means that we were out there pioneering eating ramen for six years before that, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm at this tiny little event one day, and it's an A-list panel with uh, Ted Sarandos, Brian Grazer. Who else was on there? two or three, it was like Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood. And the panel's over and I walk up to Ted Sarandos and I said, can I, can I say hi to you for a second? He said, sure. I said, I'm Rob Barnett. I run this stupid thing called my damn channel. And he goes, I know. And I said, are you being polite? He goes, no, I know everything that you've done. I said, really? (laughs) He said, yes. You know, I said, well, it, it really isn't until this minute that everyone's now going to understand what original online series is because you did it. And that was kind of the beginning. And then I went to the bathroom at this little event Mm -hmm. and I walk in the bathroom and Brian Grazer is peeing (laughs) and there's nobody else in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. So I, I got the Belushi devil and angel over my shoulder asking me, should I or shouldn't I? Should I or shouldn't I? And and my father up in heaven goes, you got to talk to him, you know? So I said, hey, Brian, he's literally peeing, you know? And I said, hey, Brian, I want to say hi, I'm Rob Barnett. And you guys just hired Melissa Schneider. She was my head of uh, production that was running My Damn Channel Live. Jesse Cowell was doing the original scripted comedy series. Jesse was working with me on Gigi and all these other shows. But Melissa was producing My Damn Channel Live. That week, Brian Grazer and Ron Howard poached her. They hired her away from me oh, wow. to start their digital studio. Um for for the two of them, right? So I figured, well, this is the perfect way to say hi to the guy. So right. I said, hey, I just want to say hi. You guys just hired Melissa Schneider. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I said, no, you don't have to be sorry. You're Brian Grazer. <laughs> and uh, now we're a little less creepy. We're washing our hands. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said something like, I, I said, well, I feel like I've been stuck in the first inning of a nine-inning baseball game for 10 years and Grazer just looked at me and said, it's now. And it was pretty profound, you know, it's pretty profound. Meaning now is when Hollywood decides they're interested to start getting into the swimming pool. Right. Then did it, did it hurt that they didn't end up acquiring any of the yourself or any of the other independent it hurt bad yeah but i i got to a point where i had a lot of mouths to feed and i realized you know what we're not going to get that pot of gold and it's time to take my toys and go home and uh 
find this thing called a job. <laughs> and you did find one at Audible, but then after that, now you found this latest version of Rob Barnett Media, which is headhunting, and it's the reason that you wrote this book that's just out now called Next Job, Best Job. And um, two things. One, I love, I love the fact, I remember when you first started making videos, and I heard you talking to Corolla about this. I love the fact that it blew up on LinkedIn. <laughs> yes. Like well, you're, you were a viral star. If you're, you're going to be a viral star <laughs> in headhunting, yeah. make it LinkedIn. Right? Well, That's the place that you want to be viral are, for that. You are correct, sir. That's and, home base for this shit. Right? And then the other thing is, you know, as we've been talking for the last hour or so, like you've been telling me about all of these headhunting stories whether you knew they were headhunting stories at the time or not, you That's know, right. finding, finding the Photoshop guys, finding Grace, finding. Hiring uh, Corolla and Kimmel. Yeah. yeah and, and Melissa Schneider and all of these uh, and uh keyboard cat and, <laughs> <laughs> and everybody else is like, you know, you were, you had these relationships with, with established people like Harry Shearer and Don was, but, but then you were also like, Oh, Scouring the scouring the the internet for the next yeah finding Grace finding Malkoff just yeah. finding people that really needed their shot you know needed needed their shot needed that one person to say it's you let's go here's a paycheck right it only takes one I mean I joke in the book about the six degrees of Kevin Bacon being five too many you know you just in <laughs> order to get the next thing it just needs that one person to go yes yeah you just need that that chad hurley <laughs> yeah <laughs> i like you <laughs> but it is it is because we all struggle with uh you know the agony of defeat more maybe than most when you're creative uh it is the thing that can save your life realizing that you know even in the worst moments of hell you're still just one person away from somebody how, going, how, how all much right, come it? on over here and roll yeah. up your sleeves and get to work and shut up. How, how much, how much of this, this moment in time is, is more difficult for uh, mid-level people or, 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 you know, Gen Xers than it is for people from generation Z who were, who were brought up in a digital media, social media, ghosting, uh, wild, wild west of job hunting, well, I, I, you know, think that at any age, we're now facing a new reality that never existed before. In days of yore, there was a thing called a long-lasting, secure, stable, full-time job. But that's gone. We did only a little bit of research for the book because I don't like research. I prefer to just talk. <laughs> in the research, we found from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics that the new long-term, secure, stable job in the U.S. of A. is four years. That's the norm. That stat's only as, as old as 2020. So, you know, regardless of your age, you're going to have to get used to the fact that if you're not a solo artist, if you're not an entrepreneur, if you're somebody that believes that the security of your career can only come from a company where somebody else is giving you the paycheck every two weeks, then you're going to have to get a lot more comfortable 
with the idea that at no fault of your own, that shit's not going to last for the next 10 or 11 years. You're going to be in another turnaround. You're going to be in a job change, a restructuring, a reorg, a re-agony of some kind. You know, this has become the norm. Well, it feels like, you know, we're talking now in the summer of 2021, and it feels like because of the COVID-19 pandemic, there were so many jobs and careers that disappeared or people who decided they didn't want to stay in their careers because they had, they had the time and self-quarantine to think about what they wanted to do. So there's so many people who are looking for their next job. And, uh, you know, as, as I was joking with you in the beginning, you know, I started out as a newspaper reporter thinking I was going to be a newspaper reporter for my entire life. And I'm sort of still doing it, but just with computers and microphones. Um, but I know that when I have to find my next job, best job, I will come looking for you, Rob Barnett. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm, it's really great to have a reunion, to see your lovely face and, and to get some time to, to revisit um, some of the good stuff we did together. I really appreciate it. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.